Dumbo, 1941. Dumbo is known for flying, but much like Pinocchio's legacy, this iconography is a remarkably small portion of the film. The bulk of Dumbo's plot is akin to the ugly duckling fairy tale, as the titular elephant is born into working at a circus and is ostracized by other elephants because of his massive ears. Clocking in at only 64 minutes, Dumbo is so economical in storytelling that flight being a revelation in the last 10 minutes manages to work and be memorable as it is made stronger by how many character beats of failure and exploitation come before it. The film opens on the night sky, being filled with storks on their way to deliver babies as they approach a highly stylized map of Florida, creating a heightened fantasy setting from the start. They start to drop their packages down one by one, and as they fly back up, it creates a short but detailed and impressive visual effect due to the number of layers between the birds. It is revealed that these babies are being delivered to circus animals, all while a song is heard about how no one is left out by the stork until the scene ends with one elephant mom expecting and not receiving a delivery. The next day, the circus heads north by train as a lone stork is checking a map for where his child goes, careful not to let it drop through his cloud seat, until he locks eyes on the train and catches up to drop off Dumbo. This child is already set up to be different by his arrival coming later than the other children, but it becomes apparent to his mother and her peers when he sneezes and reveals his massive ears. As the snarky and gossipy elephant women mock him, they claim their callous remarks are simply harmless, as they nickname him Dumbo as opposed to Jumbo Jr. His mother responds by slamming a door in their face and swaddling the baby in his own ears. By this point, the studio staples are apparent. Anthropomorphized animals drawn in the hyper-realist style in a simple plot that is primarily told through visual language and action and complemented by song. The detail animation of Dumbo is remarkable and another advancement for the team. The theme of being othered is established quick and is a constant through-line under the story beats. What I think largely sets this movie apart from its narrative feature predecessors is the use of silent scenes to develop emotional connection through action alone. Much of Pinocchio's and Snow White's character beats are accompanied with character songs or dialogue to drive them, but neither Dumbo nor his mother speak, and the time spent watching her being a loving mother to him is more tender as a result. There is a song in the middle of the movie, Baby Mine, that is about maternal love, but that is not a direct song sung to Dumbo and there are other shots of other sleeping families throughout. Once their train arrives in a new location, there is much work to be done to set up tents overnight, and this work is primarily done by dark-skinned workers void of character, singing a worker's song. While many lyrics are referring to lower-class work and struggles broadly, and while the animals of the circus are working alongside them to potentially draw a parallel of treatment of the working class, there are also some lyrics that are either pointedly racist or not thought through well enough. Quote, We slave until we're almost dead, quote, is a poor choice of words either way, and as well as a line shouted near the end of the number, quote, grab that rope, you hairy ape, end quote. Which as far as I can tell is not shouted at an actual ape from the circus, not that I would interrogate that any less. On a technical level, this set piece is visually impressive. The detail in light, rain, wind hitting fabric, and the characters traveling in mud is all well done, but it is hard to ignore the choice to not personify any character of color beyond their identity as a group of workers not seen again in the film. The kindest reading is that this is meant to parallel working class struggles of marginalized people with the plight of our ostracized elephant lead, who is mocked and exploited due to being different, but that is not a reading I would confidently back myself. Interestingly, the working class struggle is echoed again in a later scene with clown performers, seen only as silhouettes from the outside of a tent. After ending a show with Dumbo to raucous applause, they celebrate together and discuss how they can top this act the next time they perform, at Dumbo's expense. After suggesting higher and higher heights for him to fall from, the following conversation is heard. Hey, sure. be careful. You'll hurt the little guy. Ah, oh, go on. Elephants ain't got no feelings. No, they made of rubber. This idea is sensational. Let's go tell the boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, yeah, let's yeah. Go. 
Hey, hey, let's hit him for a race. Yeah, sure. This is white real dough. Oh, we're going to hit the big boss for a race. Yes, we're going to hit the big boss for a race. There is something compelling to the text and the depiction of misguided workers being willing to punch down on those perceived below them to push themselves up, potentially mirroring the treatment of the only black characters on screen doing the hardest job alongside circuit's animals. However, this scene has been speculated to be a direct reference to the animator strike that occurred in 1941, which delayed the film's production and release. Walt was deeply opposed to recognizing the screen cartoonist guild and wrote to the strikers blaming communists for sowing their problems in his studio, and after his brother Roy aligned with the union, he maintained contempt for all those who were ever on strike. This scene then plays like a Rorschach test. I could see Walt overlooking it, laughing at a mockery of these workers, while the animators were watching and seeing people who genuinely deserve higher pay for their work and entertainment and are getting a dig at Walt into the film. Like the earlier scene, I would suggest it's mocking above the kinder reading, but the text having that much perceivable death is worth noting. Before Dumbo is relegated to clown status, however, he is on display with his mother before he quickly is mocked and insulted by circus goers, and when his mother viciously defends him, she destroys property and harms staff. This results in his mother being locked away and Dumbo left alone to be mocked by the troop of elephants until a nice mouse named Timothy enters the film. He sees no reason why Dumbo should be mocked for being different and scares the elephants in a righteous act of revenge before befriending Dumbo and getting him into a star performance. That performance goes terribly due to Dumbo tripping on his ears. The animation of the set piece is spectacular, and it is after this that he becomes a prop for the clown troop and the elephant women deem him, quote, no longer an elephant. After the scene with the clowns discussing their wages, they leave the room with a champagne bottle open in a bucket of water. Timothy tries to congratulate Dumbo on his performance, but he is crying due to feeling humiliated and exploited, and Timothy takes him inside and suggests getting a big drink of water to feel better. Within minutes, both characters are drunk, and Dumbo is blowing alcohol bubbles, which quickly morph into a large purple elephant that multiplies as the film delivers a musical number that blows every segment of Fantasia out of the water. Pink Elephants on Parade is a masterpiece of animation that perfectly matches the detail of the studio's hyperrealism within a truly surreal set piece. The second half especially has such masterful shading on silhouettes in motion that are breathtaking, and as the number reaches a climax, the elephants float down into the shape of clouds on a sunset. This then becomes a perfect case study of how hyperrealism can be a limitation for Disney. While animation can make any image become another image, these films follow narrative structure and design established by live-action filmmaking, and as a result, scenes like this, that cannot be accomplished in live-action, can only exist in a Disney film through inebriation or some narrative qualifier that separates it from the initial perceived reality. As the studio develops, they do eventually create films in the orthodox and hyper-realist modes in which certain characters can break these rules within their reality, Aladdin's Genie and Treasure Planet's Morph, for example. But these characters are designed with narrative barriers that allow them to do things others cannot. After this sequence, Dumbo wakes up in a tree, greeted by several crows that are exaggerated stereotypes of black men. Beyond this, they are not particularly defined characters, but they are one of the few groups of characters to change their mind about Dumbo and after mocking him, decide to help him. They offer up a magic feather to help him fly with his big ears, and sure enough, Dumbo can flap his ears and fly. The film wraps up with a circus act as he prepares to jump from a burning building down to the clowns. The film wraps up with his circus act as he prepares to jump from a burning building down to the clowns, but he plans to fly back up instead of fall like before. He loses his feather in descent and stress heightens until he takes flight, revealing he can truly fly all on his own. There are several smash cuts of newspapers detailing his success, ending on the note that what made him different was his greatest strength of all, and now he and his mother are happy and properly compensated circus elephants. 
After this analysis, it is less surprising that the live-action remake dug into the industry built on Dumbo's back as a performer, potentially writing Michael Keaton's character as a satire of Walt's worst industrious traits. This film, though, is a visual treat, but undoubtedly has hang-ups depending on how its labor politics are read into, and it becomes unwieldy with how it connects with race and marginalization. While it champions a lead that is othered for his appearance, his acceptance comes when his otherness becomes a monetizable asset, but there is only so much to dig into with these 64 minutes. After this, the studio releases Bambi the following year, cementing its formalist roots in hyper-realist, anthropomorphized animal stories, which the studio is still indebted to today. Next up, Bambi, 1942. Please go to ghostofjoe.com to see all these essays. You can also find a link to this one directly in the show notes of this upload, and there you will find in-text citations and works cited, and share it with anyone who you think cares a lot about Disney animation. You can also find myself on Twitter at Ghost of Joe, Ghost of J-O. The music used in this audio version is from The Skeleton Dance, a Disney Silly Symphony short. Thank you for listening and reading.